Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing, which starts right now and here's why you need to watch today's show. Plaid is changing up the wallet game while Interpool enters the metaverse. We'll discuss all those stories and why they matter to you. Plus, Ben Whitby from Credo is with us. Lots to discuss about the current state of DeFi. Stay tuned for that. I'm Nico Bruga. Ash Bennington is with me as always. Last show to wrap up the week, Ash. Are you ready for the weekend? Absolutely. Oh, me too. Very exciting and uh, perfect way to end the week with uh, both you and Ben today. And don't forget to subscribe to Real Vision Crypto. It's free. If you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you don't miss when we go live. Now, a word from our sponsors. In other words, Real Vision. We've just launched a groundbreaking new series called Three Ideas, where we explore three actionable investment opportunities with an industry-leading expert. Here's what people are saying. Love, love, love your show. Awesome format, love this, extremely well done. You can now get access to every episode in this series and all the investment ideas for only $99 a year. Sign up, all right. I've done my due diligence to spread the word, so let's jump into the latest price action. A lot of uncertainty today, especially with Elon Musk chiming in on Twitter saying that recession might last until spring of 2024. On the other hand, cryptocurrency prices are trending downward today. BTC dipped below the key $19,000 level. Ash, I'm assuming it's a similar trend over on ETH. How's it looking over there? Yeah, ETH is behaving kind of the same. It's been trading inside the $1,200 to $1,400 range for over a month now. It dipped below $1,300, now trading at around $1,280, Nico. Thanks for that, Ash. Now on to our top story. Entering the Web3 space requires every user to have a digital wallet. If you make a transaction on the ETH network, you probably use the MetaMask wallet. If you're a fan of Solana, you may use Phantom wallet. How about my Cardano fans out there? You probably downloaded the NAMI wallet too. The market is seeing a flurry of digital wallets. And now with Plaid's announcement, we got another one. Ash, how does this relate to all these different wallets? Yeah, Nico, that really is the key question. First, let me give you a little bit of an explainer uh, for folks who may not know about what Plaid is and what Plaid does. So Plaid is basically a software as a services company uh, that allows clients to connect banking and financial services to power their e-commerce, very much a web two uh, kind of company. So if you're in the business of selling widgets and you need to interface uh, with one of your customers' banks so you can process their transactions, Plaid will allow you to do that on the back end. Uh, this is just a software as a service that facilitates facilitates real-world transactions in TradFi. So what Plaid is doing now uh, and what this story is all about is a project called Wallet 
Onboard. The Wallet Onboard product is creating something called an API. That's an application programming interface, which allows computers essentially to talk to each other so that there's a standard interface uh, that allows cryptocurrencies to connect regardless of wallet types. So to get back to your original point, Nico, uh, what this is aiming to do is to build a system where you can have e-commerce that interacts with all the wallet types that you listed above, MetaMask for Ethereum, Phantom for Solana, uh, NAMI for Cardano, et cetera. Uh, and this dramatically simplifies, potentially, if they can execute on this, uh, the level of sophistication required to process different transactions. Uh, so it allows essentially companies uh, to interact with all of these different wallets and crypto types as though they were just one because there's a standard interface. If you're looking for a, a really simple way to think about it, a metaphor, imagine you're selling donuts, right? People come into your donut shop uh, and they come in with dollars and they come in with yen and euro and yuan and Swiss franc. You're in the donut business. You're not in the FX business. You want a standardized way to transact uh, seamlessly with different currencies, right? So, so what you want is someone to process those FX transactions for you. Uh, basically, what Plaid is working on uh, is this essentially for the crypto space to standardize wallets, to standardize crypto uh, so that businesses can do business uh, and be agnostic about it, if that makes sense, Nico. Absolutely. Sounds like a one-stop shop. And I, I really hope someone else is out there working on the UX for uh, retail investors because, Ash, like you say, until yeah. that gets fixed, we're not getting your mother, my mother on uh, into this new ecosystem. Yeah, Nico, so, that's a great that's a great point, and and it's and it's you know that's on the on the retail side to get people to connect. This is on the corporate side uh, for transaction processing. So as you say, you're exactly correct. Uh, there are still those challenges: UI, UX, user interface, user experience on the retail side. Nico, thank you, Ash. I, I appreciate that clarification. Alrighty, on to our next story. A court in New York has ordered Prime Trust to return $17 million in crypto back to Celsius. This one sounds really interesting, Ash. What's the deal here? Well, that's right. So so uh, Celsius filed a suit against uh, Prime Trust in the Southern District of New York demanding that Prime Trust return crypto assets uh, that were Celsius's control uh, prior to its bankruptcy. Prime Trust had provided custodial services to Celsius. Uh, as a quick refresher, uh, banks act as custodians when they hold assets on behalf uh, of an individual, or in this case, uh, of a company. Uh, and what we're talking about here is essentially uh, this bank providing financial services uh, to places like funds and lenders and other financial clients, in this case, Celsius. Uh, Prime Trust agreed uh, in a hearing to return those assets to Celsius. As you said, Nico, uh, $17 million in cryptocurrency, as you just mentioned. Yeah, Celsius, one of those stories that just never seems to die in this space at the moment. But I got a really fun one for you, Ash. Check out this video Interpol tweeted out. It's got over um, almost 200,000 views already. So what are we looking at here, Ash? Uh, solving crimes in the metaverse? This our future? First, uh, this is Interpol, the uh, International Criminal Police Organization, uh, not the 2000s band that came out with the song <laughs> Slow Hands. If you're expecting that video, you're probably sorely disappointed. Uh, so what this is about is this Interpol, a very uh, important international police agency, is now in the metaverse. I don't think they're really solving crimes yet. It sounds to me more like a like a training exercise, maybe a networking exercise, maybe, maybe a little bit of public relations in there too. Uh, this was announced at the 90th Interpol General Assembly 
in New Delhi, India. Uh, and apparently it's live right now. Uh, Interpol delegates are able to explore the general secretariat headquarters uh, of Interpol in Lyon, France. I didn't know that's where they were. Apparently that's where they are uh, using virtual reality headsets. You know, I should add Interpol has already partnered with Microsoft and Meta uh, to power this after issuing the statement that, quote, social engineering scams, violent extremism and misinformation could be particular challenges in the metaverse. I don't know, Nico, it sounds like uh, global uh, law enforcement here is interested in exploring these technologies because they know the world is changing. What do you think? I mean, look, uh, the child in me or the uh, person obsessed with spycraft, Jean Le Carré, the Bureau, really is uh, excited maybe at the prospects that I could have a second career in the metaverse as a detective. But uh, more seriously, this feels a little bit more like a PR stunt or something. Uh, very much more of a VR experience rather than a metaverse experience. Reminds me when I was in college, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, and we would, you know, do virtual reality experiences of the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Um, so pretty narrow uh, the metaverse, I'd say. Um, but that's it for today's news. So moving on to our main interview now, let's bring in our guest, Ben Whitby, a longtime friend of the show and a crypto compliance guru from Credo Network. Ash, I'll let you take it away from here, and I'll be back at the end of the segment with my key takeaways. Thanks, Nico. Ben, it's great to have you back. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Ash. You know, you and I were just hanging out at uh, Masari Mainnet uh, here in New York a few weeks ago, and and we had this long discussion about some of the topics that I'm really eager to touch on uh, here today. Uh, just to set this up, set a little bit of context for our viewers, you know, it seems that every day, and this is something we talk about on this show and elsewhere on Real Vision, uh, we're talking about new legal, regulatory, and compliance uh, stories, whether it's, you know, SEC uh, opening investigations over tokens that may be securities, uh, AML, KYC, SAR questions. These are all questions about tax evasion, uh, and funds uh, location and sourcing, uh, or OFAC sanctions. This is the Office of Foreign Asset Controls at the U.S. Treasury Department uh, that controls uh, specially designated individuals uh, and nation states. Uh, They're not allowed to transact in dollar-based uh, transactions. You know, this story seems like it never ends. There's just always a new angle. There's always a new story. Uh, there's always news flow on this. Ben, my question to you is this, big picture, 50,000 foot level, where are we right now in terms of the state F play for crypto legal, regulatory, and compliance? 50,000 foot view, it's looking really good. It's looking really positive long-term. Um, we've got some real short-term hiccups in the, in, the, in the immediate term as we figure out where these different rules are supposed to be coming from and which teams are gonna be kind of overseeing them. Um, but these assets that we are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis, this magic internet money is becoming an accepted um, asset class in its own right. And the, the infrastructure, the, the protocols that are being used and developed around this, they are gonna be driving the next economy. And that next economy is not gonna be serving just the 2 billion people that are on the internet today that have got Visa cards, MasterCards and bank accounts, but 8 billion people around the world. And by which time the the global population will be 10 billion people. So, you know, if we're looking for growth in all the global economies, which everybody is right now, if we want to go and 5x our growth opportunities and our target our target market, then regulators need to get on board, open up crypto to all sorts of different enterprises. Because by doing that, then Netflix can sell instead of 2 billion people today, 
10 billion people tomorrow. Yeah. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Ben, you know, obviously when you speak, you sound very much like a crypto native. You've been in this space for a long time, but your background is in traditional finance. Tell us a little bit about your background because I think it very much informs your view of this space. Yeah, I mean, I came out of university with a quantum physics degree and ended up in the in the city in London. I worked for Lloyd's of London in insurance, which is why I understand insurance space so much and why I think it's so critical that, you know, one of the things that we've been doing at Credo is bring that, that insurance kind of front and center in everything that we do. Um, I then continued in that space, um, in the technology space, and actually built the world's first interest rate swaps trading platform, which we built for a Swiss uh, brokerage house called Swapstream um, that was subsequently bought by CME. Um, and it was during that time that I really transitioned from the technology space in terms of hands-on code into the, the compliance space because I needed to kind of understand what we were building to. And I bounced around a number of different consultancies from Accenture in the capital markets compliance team to PwC in their team and was fortunate to be part of the PwC team when Lehman's went into administration. So that gave me a real insight right. into that insolvency process. Um, and I yeah. spent nearly eight years at HSBC and their capital markets compliance team and saw, saw an awful lot of things <laughs> rather not talk about here. But um, yeah, it, it's left me with some battle scars. Right. Um, and right. it was 2013 that I really went down the crypto rabbit hole. So I've, I've been in crypto a long time. And when you see what a digitally scarce asset can do, then you can quickly extrapolate that into all capital markets. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, in many ways, uh, Ben, those battle scars make you uniquely well suited uh, to understand this space, to understand the potential risks in this space. I think most of the people uh, who are ha watching this conversation uh, don't need to be convinced, uh, you know, that digital assets are going to be a substantial part of the future economy. They're very passionate about digital assets. They're very passionate about decentralization. But it's so interesting to me that you've had those experiences on the compliance side, uh, getting to help mop up the catastrophe that was Lehman Brothers uh, gives you a kind of a unique insight uh, into understanding risks and how things look when they start to go wrong. Uh, where do you think we are right now with trying to mitigate some of those risks that I mentioned? Obviously, there's a lot of legal, regulatory, and compliance uncertainty. Uh, you know, I said at the top of the show, uh, whether it's, for example, in uh, anti-money laundering, uh, whether it's in the, the question about which of these assets are and are not securities, or even in OFAC compliance, which I think is a, a potential significant uh, potential potential risk point, friction point uh, for this space right now. H how do you think about all of those moving parts? Um, I'm actually still quite fearful for the, the, the global capital markets as a whole. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm quite fearful for one reason. It's like when we, when we were looking at the various different positions that were held in Lehman, we started looking at the market overall. Um, you recognize that the, the 
various different derivatives contracts that have been written on paper um, had been written for terms of 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, sometimes even 50 years. And we're, what, 12 years out from Lehman's collapse? So, you know, there's still a long tail of, uh, of risk that hasn't been reported into the market, that isn't transparent, that, you know, nobody really truly knows where that default risk lies. Right. And it's, it's amazing to me that we haven't adopted a more transparent position going forwards than we already have. It's been, it's been 12, 14 years since Lehman really kind right. of collapsed and DeFi would fix all of this. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about that. What's the vision that you have for how De DeFi might begin to solve some of those problems? And what are the risks that you need to mitigate in order to make that happen? Um, well, so, you know, everybody that's involved in the derivative space understands that when you write the contract, you're writing that long-term risk. You're writing that obligation in terms of the cash flows backwards and forwards between different counterparties. Um, you never really know what the collateral management position is in those counterparties. And those collateral positions need to be rebalanced at, um, on a periodic basis. There are teams of people within banks that, that manage end-of-day collateral positions, make margin calls, et cetera, et cetera. And I can see a space where we can start writing contracts in a very programmatic, smart contract-based way where those collateral calls are made instantly. That collateral can be held in a relatively transparent position. Um, that transparent condition can be made available and transparent to the regulators so that they can help themselves and understand where they are with regards to the resolution requirements. And things will just work. <laughs> things, will, things will just be very much more stable, very much more um, comfortable. A lot of the, the nervousness comes from an intrinsic gut feeling that people have against a particular counterparty rather than necessarily having the data. So what are you working on at Curadio and how does that dovetail with the vision you just articulated? Well, so we've got a number of different kind of um, wallet solutions that we've got in the market at the moment. Credo in its fundamental uh, position is a, is a technology tool and frame set to enable you to mitigate the risks of private key management. Private key is a piece of information. And what we manage capital markets with isn't by information per se, it's with governance. So Credo abstracts private key risk or information risk into governance, which we all understand. We always stand on a two, four, six I principle sign off. Um, and moving into that governance position allows us to provide an audit trail, a documentation position that you can evidence the actions that people have taken at a particular moment in time. Things that we are doing today include enabling teams to secure assets in that governance framework. We are powering MetaMask Institutional. We also have the, um, the layer two that myself and Anthony have spoken about in the past that enables instant atomic swaps between counterparties. We're extending that. For people who may not know what an atomic swap is, uh, Ben, can you give us a little bit of background there? Well, so, um, 
an atomic swap in the, the, the language that is used in crypto is um, the ability to transfer assets from one person to another person instantly. Right. And um, it, it's almost as if you've got a bond on one bank, dollars on a second bank, and you can make that transaction so that your dollars end up in the first bank and the bonds rights end up in the, the other bank. The assets are swapped. There's no right. credit counterparty risk. And those that 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 decision to transact in the market can be executed instantly. Yeah, now, that's so as very, you say, it eliminates the counterparty risk and it also eliminates the time risk of differentials in terms of price movement. Correct. Correct. Now, the way that we've um, brought that to market and it's being used extensively um, today by the, the users of the Credo network. What they have come back to us and, and asked us to do is it to extend that to, into a position where they can actually use it as their settlement driver. So typically hedge funds, um, family offices, trading platforms, other different players in the crypto space are still running to traditional settlement processes, which means that they're transacting on a credit risk basis with their counterparties. And they're settling either midday or end of day or sometimes both. Now, what we're doing is we're extending that peer-to-peer -peer OTC individual, I'll give you Bitcoin, you give me USDC, into a spectrum and a multi-asset position. Where I can set a basket of currencies and you can set a basket of currencies and you can give me all your settlement transaction at once and I'll give you my settlement transaction at once. Completely eliminating it's a T plus zero settlement and there's no credit counterparty. Yeah. Ben, I have to ask you about the price of the token QRDO uh, trading now at about uh, 20 cents. Uh, this is off from a high in uh, November, I believe, of 2021 of around $9.35. So obviously an erosion of value, a max drawdown there of about 98%. What's happening there? I mean, the crypto market is brutal. Crypto market is absolutely brutal. It's really difficult to talk about price. Um, it's it's frustrating that not everybody sees in the external world the value that we are trying to build and try and create in this ecosystem. Um, I think a lot of the the price is driven by hype bull, um, by hopium, um, by expectation in in the market and clearly people looking at we are what we're building and they're not associating the value of the utilization to the the price of the token um i think you have to strip away with all crypto assets and start looking at the fundamentals you know there's a narrative around bitcoin about how bitcoin is the next digital gold and therefore you can take the the, the market cap of gold and divide it by 21 million and get a price um, there's a narrative around Ethereum being ultrasound money and the fact that that's going to be used to, to drive kind of that um, the, the, the risk-free rate of the crypto markets per se. With, with Credo, we're building for institutions. You know, the way that you will use Credo is you will, you will be paying for your transactions in the QRDO token. So when an institution wants to spend or transact in Bitcoin, they will pay their Bitcoin fees and they will pay their QRDO fees. 
and they will pay those QRDO fees based on the transactions that they make against that particular asset. It will be the same with ETH, so they'll pay their ETH gas fees and they'll pay their QRDO fees. It will be the same with Matic, when they move and transfer and transact on the Polygon network, they'll mm -hmm. pay their Matic as gas and they'll pay their Credo as governance fees. We haven't turned those fees on yet. Um, so maybe people <laughs> people don't understand what that's gonna do to the to the token price, but you know. So, so you haven't turned have on those fees, meaning meaning there's no obligation yet to pay in QRDO uh, for those right. fees. We've been giving we we did through um, various different transactions and activities that we we've been undertaking. We transacted over three billion dollars worth of business last month through the network. I say we. You know the users transacted that 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 position, and that protocol has been running without a fee structure at Titan at this moment in time. So that is coming. Um, the QRDO is going to be fundamental, front and center in everything that you do on the Credo network. I don't want to dwell on price, but just one more question. Uh, you know, you've articulated this view uh, of the this sort of the challenge, uh, what you view as a disconnect between the underlying value of the business and the price of the token. How does that impact the way that you manage the business uh, in terms of talking to clients, in terms of funding? Uh, how do you manage the business when you've seen uh, this steep decline in the price of the token? Well, so the business isn't impacted per se by the price of the token at this point in time. Um, the, the fundraising and the activity that we did in terms of um, earlier in the life cycle of the organization and the, the build out of the network itself, given us a runway of around about four years. Um, we are we were profitable before we did the, the growth expansion that we've put into place. The, the network fees that we're trying to kind of operate at that particular point in time were looking really good. We've still got a tremendous multi-year runway that's that's available. So even with no fees, even with no um, interactions on the network, then the team will still be available, still be around to, to do that. And we've got an awful lot of different kind of um, ideas about how we can help organizations engage in the various different worlds that are existing. We definitely live in a cross-chain world now. Um, whether it's EVMs or non-EVMs, the, the existence of a cross-chain world is very real. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to shift gears here a little bit to talk about something else that uh, I've been talking about uh, here on this show and elsewhere and something that we actually talked about in Mainnet a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, which is this challenge that with the, with the, the questions that we're seeing about uh, compliance, legal and regulatory around the 
uh, Ethereum transition from proof of work to proof of stake. Ethereum, obviously now an interest-bearing asset. Uh, it creates yield in a proof of stake environment. I've been talking about this on this show uh, with the metaphor saying that it's like an, an immovable object uh, being hit by an irresistible force. Uh, what happens when, and this is really the question that, that I've been asking uh, sort of quietly, uh, and, and I've talked about it a little bit on the show, but I want to ask it really directly now because you have expertise in this space, and I know this is something that you've thought about from your many decades in, in compliance. So what happens when you have a publicly traded U.S. corporation with uh, persons who are U.S. persons, uh, directors and officers operating a stake pool, uh, and you have a transaction where there is uh, a, a, a wallet address, either the uh, initiator of the transaction or the recipient of the transaction who is on the OFAC list. They are blacklisted essentially by the Treasury Department. They're sanctioned uh, by the United States. What happens when that asset, uh, when that when that asset transfer, when that transaction uh, comes before a stake pool? The challenge here, at least as I understand the issue, uh, is that effectively you don't have the ability to censor transactions. Censorship resistance uh, neutrality is incredibly important in this space. There's an article out in Coindesk uh, I believe it was yesterday, uh, called Will Censorship Fork Ethereum uh, by a gentleman named Sam Kessler, asking essentially what happens when you have uh, these these sort of just irreconcilable situation. Does the Ethereum network begin to fork? There's a very real risk that it does begin to fork. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the narrative of how governments perceive this and take action against firms that are looking to assist staking needs to be very closely examined. Um, mm. Coinbase have already come out and said if they are seen to be put under pressure to validate, uh, to, to censor um, based on block activity, that they will cease becoming a validator. They will cease being a validator. Yeah, and, and this and this up. came and this came directly from Brian Armstrong, I believe, in a tweet. Yeah. I mean, I, I believe he said that you know he hopes that there's some kind of technical solution. He hopes that there's some kind of legal solution uh, that will will forestall uh, that risk. But but as you said, Ben, he he was pretty direct and said we will cease being a validator. I mean, kind of in so many words, that was the point. I think, this is I think pri pri privacy is something that lots of people are focused on in this space. Um, at this moment in time, you've got to be a really stupid criminal to try and do any business on the blockchain. People are going to be able to see everything that you do, uh, transact that back to everything that you've done historically, and also transact it into the activity that um, you will do in future. You know, there was right. very little opportunity to hide. Um, Ironically, the best way to hide your tracks is to go and deal with a, a centralized exchange. And, you know, if you really want to make sure that you deal with those um, transactions, you deal with somebody that's on the brink, probably going out of business, you get your transactions through and you hope that they fail. And they have got very poor data retention management policies in place that aren't going to be able to enable you to be tracked off, off as a centralized entity would normally allow. Um, right, but the, the chain screening tools are getting much better at um, transacting cross chain, and actually, the issue of privacy is something that I think we all need. We, you know, we've got 
concepts of source of wealth in traditional finance for a reason, because people want to be able to transact privacy, privately. But then when yeah. there are questions about the source of your wealth, you've been given the ability to evidence those. And we see those in, in trusts and wills and inheritance situations all of the time. Yeah, well, to precisely that point, you know, if you go up to the Ethereum Foundation website and you command F for two phrases, uh, censorship resistance, this is the idea that transactions can't be censored, uh, and credible neutrality, this is the idea that essentially all actors on the chain are treated identically, whether or not, for example, they're sanctioned uh, by the United States government. Uh, these are very powerful concepts in the space. These are things that people, particularly people who have uh, libertarian leanings, philosophically feel very, very strongly about. And now we're, we're sort of we're seeing uh, those values kind of collide uh, with the values of the uh, of, of of governance, with the values of the you know the 21st century uh, financial system. And this this idea of a fork, I know I I painted this in kind of broad strokes. The question here, perhaps even uh, phrased more pointedly, the risk uh, is that we wind up with an Ethereum blockchain uh, that essentially has a uh, a regulated uh, chain uh, and one that has a, a kind of a, a libertarian chain that 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 is, you know, more steeped in the philosophy that I that I just mentioned. And and this is, it seems to me at least a, a real risk. Yeah, it is a real risk. I really hope we don't get there. I hope that there's a recognition that it's a much stronger position to have a public and open blockchain that people can use and people can build on. Um, in Europe, we've spent decades trying to get to a position where an individual can spin up um, a new organizational entity and get into business very quickly to reduce that friction. Um, we certainly don't want to put more friction into the process that is in that next stage of that evolution of business. Um, yeah. And in, in terms of the censorship resistance, we just have to look at the censorship capabilities of mobile telephone conversations that happened today, conversations such as this. Now, if I said a word that was sanctioned on this show, I mean, should uh, what, what should happen? Well, fortunately, we don't sanction words yet uh, in the West. Uh, it is uh, something we do with money. But I want to bring uh, I want to bring Nico back into this conversation, who I know has been watching and listening avidly. Oh, yes. Thank you so much, Ash and Ben. Really excited. So it's that time of the episode. Let's get those horns of blaring, the spotlight swinging, because it's time for key takeaways. First up, the 50,000-foot view is looking good, although there have been some short-term hiccups. The acceptance of quote-unquote magic internet money is growing. But if we want to grow, we need to get regulators on board. Second, given what we all saw with Lehman in 08, Ben recognizes that the long tail of risk hasn't been reported into the market. No one truly knows where the deeper risks lie. Ben believes we need to adopt a more transparent position as a community as a whole. And lastly, thankfully, there's DeFi, which might begin to solve some of these problems. For example, Ben sees the adoption of smart contracts as key to increasing transparency and reducing risk in the ecosystem. Ben, anything you'd like to add? I mean, I wish that people would be more open to exploring this ecosystem and you know it doesn't take very much to expose the boards to this i've had conversations with people that say 
I want to put a stable coin out. I want to put it out on the Ethereum uh, blockchain, but I don't want to hold Ethereum. Help me. It's like there's some fundamentals there in terms of the way that you understand how this public ecosystem works and these chains work. You're going to need to hold those underlying, those governance tokens, those tokens that enable you to transact on whichever blockchain it is. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see a lot more kind of progress. And I'm really excited that we've got businesses such as Ticketmaster and Nike and Adidas and Dolce & Gabbana kind of entering the metaverse space and doing business with, whether it's marketing or not, doing business with, with these utilities, which they are public utilities now, we should start thinking of them as such. Very well said. Ash, anything you'd like to add before we wrap it for today's show? Well, fortunately, I don't think our audience needs a whole lot of convincing uh, that this technology is something that they're very passionate about already. I, I would just say when we talk about legal regulatory compliance issues, we talk about things like stable coins uh, and uh, and uh, the um, you know the centralized crypto exchanges, which are it seems to be two of the major choke points uh, that authorities uh, want to use to regulate the crypto space. I think it's uh, important to point out that the one big open variable here, the one big open question, uh, is whether or not we'll see a CBDC, central bank digital currency, from the Fed uh, or a digital currency coming from the U.S. Department of Treasury. If that happens, and it is a big if, uh, that would be a total game changer. It would totally reshuffle the deck in terms of many of the questions that we've been asking today. Very well said. And uh, I think that puts a perfect uh, bow to wrap up this episode. So thank you so much, Ben, for joining us today. That's it. Don't forget to subscribe. RV Crypto is free, but we also have some paid for content. If you're looking for professional grade crypto research, scan that QR code on the screen to find out more. For those of you watching on YouTube, smash everything, the like button, the bell, and subscribe. We'll see you next week live on Real Crypto Daily Briefing. Have a great weekend, all.